is going to come to us out of Isaiah chapter 35. We're going to look at the whole chapter. And it's so interesting, 35 comes out of uh, a pretty uh, challenging uh, chapter about judgment towards sin. And then coming out of this is this beautiful song, this beautiful uh, illustration that Isaiah gives us in chapter 35. So it's in strike contrast to the previous chapter, but hear the word of the Lord through Isaiah. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. And the haunts of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and singing, sighing shall flee away. What a beautiful word for us. Broken on the edge of death, starvation, three years of absolute mental and physical torture were where American and British prisoners of war existed during World War II when army rangers went behind enemy lines with guns blazing to free these prisoners. Hampton Sides is an author and he writes in his book that there was so much chaos and so much um, fury and confusion around this liberation. A lot of these prisoners of war had no clue what was even taking place. Some prisoners of war even fled from the army rangers Uh, not knowing that they were there to help them. They had been beaten for so long, uh, their salvation in front of them, they thought was an absolute trick. They thought it was a mirage. They thought they were seeing things. They thought they were uh, having some sick game being played upon them. After all, the, the fighting subsided, and it was very early in the morning with this happening, so it was a little bit dark. The rangers were shouting, we're here to save you. Any Americans come to the gate. We're here to save you. And they kept shouting this all throughout this uh, prison camp. The prisoners who were there, they started slowly to hear what was happening, but they were so beaten and abused, they had no clue that this was a good thing. One of the rangers in particular went to one of the prisoners and was just shaking him and kind of slapping him on the head. And he was like, we're here to save you. Don't you want to be saved? We're here. And in his stupor, he was just looking and that ranger commented. He said, the lights were on, but no one was home. 
Don't you wanna be saved is what they kept pleading. And after some time, the light bulbs started to come on. The brokenness had started to give way to see like, wow, these are actual Americans. I can understand their words. I know what's happening. So they got up and left. And so as they were leaving, the Americans, they were shouting, hey, we're leaving. If anyone's here, please come with us. They didn't hear any other voices. So they gathered all these prisoners and then they started on a 25 mile hike to freedom. There was one person who didn't hear any of the uh, concussive blast, the gunfire, the chaos. His name was Edwin Rose. Edwin, in the middle of the night, went to the restroom on the other side of the camp, and he didn't hear a thing that was happening. All, and you would imagine, uh, could imagine how loud and chaotic this was with all these explosions. He didn't hear a thing because he was deaf. So in the middle of the night, he comes back to the camp. It's still kind of dark. He has no clue what's happening. And then he goes and falls back asleep. He wakes up in the morning. He sees all the fences are blown down. All the barbed wire is gone. None of his friends were around him and, all, and there were no guards there. And he starts to look around and he pieces two and two together. The rangers had carved this way through the woods and they were leaving signs all over the place for this way for help, this way for help with American flags everywhere. Edwin put the pieces together, traveled down and over several hours, caught up with the rest of the team for that long 25 mile march. Hampton Sides writes that with each step, their pessimism gave way to optimism and hope and joy. And you can imagine after spending three years as a prisoner of war, being completely exhausted and malnourished and beaten physically and mentally, you would think with every step, I'm getting one step closer to the end. This is some twisted game. But after hiking for the 25 miles, this produced joy in them that it wasn't a game, that they were actually being saved. Some of these prisoners of war reflected on their time after the years and they said, no matter what has happened to me in my life, nothing is worse than the day before we were saved. No matter what happens to me in the future, nothing is worse than being in this prisoner of war camp, being tortured for years and years and years. What a picture of salvation, right? Every, every image breaks down at some point, right? But these, these prisoners were captured. They were helpless. They were broken. And then army rangers suited up and came in and leveled the earth to carry them and bring them to safety. It's a picture of salvation here. And salvation is exactly what Isaiah's talking about in this text. It helps us to ask, well, what does salvation look like from a biblical perspective? There's a lot of overlaps with these prisoners of war and what Isaiah is describing. And Isaiah is going to break it down into two, two areas. Salvation being saved from your sins results in two things, restoration and joy. So if you're taking notes, if you're in the app, you'll see the, in the uh, sermon outline there, salvation works its way out in restoration and joy. Restoration and joy. Now, interestingly, instead of just giving uh, a definition of what salvation is, you'll see in this text, it's a little bit different. Isaiah gives five images or five little mini stories, five little mini snapshots of what restoration looks like. 
And I'm not gonna preach a six-point sermon, but what I am gonna do is just tease out each one of those pictures, put them together kind of in uh, a large view so that we can all see what all five of these things are doing as it relates to restoration. You got me? So we're gonna go quick. It's gonna be a 30,000-foot view, but we're gonna hit all five of them. All right, so first look at verses one and two. In verses one and two, we find this desert. And a desert is a background for, for restoration because this was a part of Israel's story. They had been brought from uh, out of Egypt in the Exodus. They had been brought through the wilderness. They had God provide them water and food in the desert and all these horrible, uh, broken places this is the background for what restoration looks like. And Isaiah is saying those uninhabitable places because of God's work of salvation in our lives become habitable. They become a place of life-giving refuge. And this is interesting as we think about restoration because for all of us today, we might have barren places that we experience life. For some of you, it could be personal relationships your job, your team, relationships with coworkers, in-laws, people who you try to avoid most of the year and then you're forced to be with them in an intimate setting over the holidays. That might be a barren place for some of you. But what salvation does for us is it restores those barren places into places of joy when we dwell on who Jesus is and what he has done. And we'll see how this culminates more and more with each picture pointing us and, and stirring our imaginations for Jesus. Look at the second illustration in verses three and four. Here we see soldiers in panic. They're faced with defeat. The text tells us that their hands are shaking, their knees are trembling. They are overcome with anxiety and fear and doubt and failure. And I know probably 99% of everyone here, and including me, we're not combat veterans, right? Uh, there's, this is not a church full of combat veterans. Some of you have been. Some of you have seen war. But it doesn't matter if you've seen war or not. We've all been in situations to where we've experienced crippling anxiety, depression, fear, sadness, OCD, challenging situations where we can't see our way out of anything and we either explode verbally with rage or absolutely implode and crumble into some sort of warm blanket with Netflix and we just space out for two or three days. We have all been there wondering how in the world are we gonna make it out of this storm? God is saying his salvation is like strengthening soldiers. It's strengthening us in the middle of our fears and failures. When we battle with the world, flesh, and the devil, what the Bible tells us, salvation restores the thought of Jesus is with us. And he will always be there with us, that he will save us, that he is writing our story. And if we have pain uh, hammered onto us by someone else, it's not in our uh, calling from God because of salvation to seek vengeance on our own behalf. We aren't to avenge how people have hurt us. We give that pain to Jesus, and God reminds us that he will avenge us on our behalf. Again, this brings to mind Israel. It brings to mind, as these hearers were thinking of the story of Israel being brought out of Egypt with odds stacked against them and God's words telling his people in Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. 
That word is true for us today, church. We're all going through something at some level. We're all either coming out of some sort of pain in the middle of it, or we know there's something coming in the future. This doesn't make us pessimistic, but what it does is help us to live life in reality and know that God is with us in the midst of it all. Our third picture we see in verses five and six, we see those who are blind, deaf, mute, their bodies are unable to function, and we see God heal these people, and he brings sight, sound, words, mobility. God is healing the land. God is healing the people now. And we see this all throughout Jesus's ministry. It's no accident why in the New Testament you have all these beautiful pictures of Christ healing people in all these different ailments. Now, what in the world is all this doing? These were all physical healings pointing towards a spiritual reality, reminding us that sin leaves us blind, deaf, and paralyzed to God's goodness and grace. And it's only by God's grace that he gives us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, his voice and to find him in the scriptures. God might not heal every one of their blindness and their infirmities today, but we have something much greater than that. It's spiritual eyes to see the King of kings and Lord of lords found in his word, found in our hearts, because although our bodies will give away, God's word will never give away. And he is always with us. We see our fourth image in verses, the second half of six and the first half of seven, and we see what the cost to all of, all of these blossoming forests and trees, we see what that is, and it's God's spirit being poured out. It's God's life through his spirit bringing life to everything he touches. This living water reminds us of Jesus telling the Samaritan woman that in him, when we drink from the well of Jesus, we will never be thirsty again. And this picture that we see is God's spirit being poured out into places where you would think there is lifeless hopelessness. But where God's spirit is, there's hope, there's life, there's newness of life. For those of you who have been saved, who have experienced salvation, this is drawing up memories of the joy of your salvation, how Jesus met you where you were, dead in your sins, and he brought you to new life, and you could start to see things differently. Your motivations change. Slowly, your actions start to change. This is the work of God's spirit and salvation, and he's constantly restoring us. The last picture we see is one of a highway in the middle of the desert. And several of my military buddies who've served overseas in these desert regions shared that whenever a dust storm would come, it would absolutely wipe out the roads, uh, vehicles. They couldn't see things in sandstorms. So what they would do is they would tie cordage from their bunks to the bathrooms, to the command center, to their trucks, to their weapon systems, all so that they would just not be lost. And you can imagine Israel walking amongst the desert, this picture of a highway that's above all the chaos and craziness is this safe passageway for God's people to walk on. Very similarly to uh, the soldiers in our illustration with these prisoners of war, like uh, our own salvation, when we're saved, we still have a long way ahead of us. Just because you're saved doesn't mean the pains of this world just disappear. 
Being saved doesn't mean life just gets better, but what God has promised is that there is a way on a narrow road that leads to salvation and that he's promised to be with us the whole way. And no beast on earth, no evil amongst this world will ever be able to get us off of this path and he guarantees our safe landing with him. So, five pictures of salvation, five pictures of God restoring things to a beautiful way. What was happening? What's going on here? What is the point? Well, think about when Isaiah was writing. There was a a, a dark time for God's people, and he was writing prophetically, looking forward to a time when the Messiah would come, and he would fulfill all five of these pictures in reality. The good news for us is we sit on this side of the cross and we get to look back and we get to see how Jesus fulfilled all of these things, how he turned life in the most broken and chaotic situations, how he even took the cross and made it a place of healing. That's why we can wear jewelry of, with crosses on us because the cross has been transformed by Jesus. Once a, a symbol of murder and brokenness has become the symbol of salvation for all of God's people. Jesus is in the business of restoring us, but why in the world all these pictures? Why in the world all these pictures? Well, Martin Luther says this. He says, although we read forwards, we can only understand the Bible backwards. So we are like uh, Israel right now in the sense that we look back and see what Christ has accomplished And we dwell on the restoration that Jesus is working in our lives as it fuels our faith for his second and final return. But another question is why illustrations? Why not just give a doctrinal statement that gives us very clearly what salvation actually is? Well, Don't leave here thinking, well, Pastor Matt doesn't care about theology. No, I care a lot about theology. I want y'all to dig into what supra and infralapsarianism is. I want you to understand soteriology. I want you to understand eschatology. I want you to dig deep in this stuff. But doctrine breaks down when life starts to break down. Your doctrine is what's gonna fuel your ability to engage with Jesus in deep and broken times And that's why God, through Isaiah, is stirring our imaginations. Don't doubt the power of your ability to dwell on God's grace to transform your situations. We need our imaginations woken up. We live so much in the physical with hearing, touch, smell, all of our senses that we uh, do not care as much as we should about things that are unseen. Because we live so much in the present, we forget to look back and see what God has done for us and the lengths that he went through to save us. We forget to look back when we're faced with painful eyes to see the way that God has been orchestrating your entire story and been with you the entire way and promises to never leave you or forsake you. We need our imaginations stirred. We need not only our hearts reminded of God's grace and our brains reminded of doctrine, but it needs to to stir our imagination and help us to long for a time when this pain and brokenness won't be with us anymore. During Advent, what a better time to do this. We look back and see what 
God has done for us in Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection, but his past grace fuels our faith in his future promises because we're a people that live by promises. Don't forget your entire worldview is based on the promise that Jesus has resurrected and says, I'm coming again, and he's preparing a place for you. Don't forget these things. Dwell on that reality. But it begs the question for those who are here, for those of you at home, I've been in ministry long enough and have experienced my relationship with God to know that there was a time where I thought I was a Christian and I was far from God. I was that prisoner of war sitting down with the lights on and nobody home and the gospel and faith just rattling my cage, waking me up. For some of you, that might be you today. I pray that God's spirit would rattle your cage, that your doubts wouldn't stay buried in you, that you would question God and his promises in the word, that you would put God to, uh, in all senses of respect of this word, that to the test, that you would put his scriptures and his promises to the test and find him there. If you are a Christian, if you have experienced salvation, I encourage you to take time and dwell on what God has done for you in Jesus. Not just during Advent season, but every day, dwell on what God has done for you in the hard places, in the painful times, whatever season that you're in. When I talk to people, they're always like, yeah, we're just in a crazy season and in three weeks it's gonna get better. It doesn't, it's just gonna change. Three weeks is just gonna be hectic, but it's gonna look different. The only thing is you're required to not try to control and manipulate your future, but you rest in God's promises and what he's done for you, and you cling to the truth in his word, and you'll find he starts to restore you in the middle of some of the most darkest times of your lives. That's what his restoration does for us. That's what salvation produces in us. It's a joy that's unspeakable, that's hard to put into words, it's hard to quantify, it's hard to even explain to somebody how you can have joy in the midst of pain and suffering. And remember, joy isn't laughing in the face of pain, but it's being able to grieve standing on the shoulders of God's promises. And we know that we're not defeated. So we asked, What does salvation look like? We saw five pictures of restoration. Now we turn to salvation producing joy. Salvation produces joy. And we find this in verse 10. Read with me there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I should just end my sermon right there. That is such a beautiful and such an encouraging passage. I would uh, encourage you to even memorize this. Write it down. Keep this text close to you. But what this is highlighting is the joy that salvation produces. Salvation is always producing a a rear-view focused uh, understanding of what Christ has done, but it fuels joy for whatever comes in the future. And we find this future-looking joy even with Isaiah in the text. Remember, Israel had been in years of confinement, years of brokenness, longing forward to being with God again. And 
God reminds Isaiah here to tell his people that this isn't the end of their story. Brokenness isn't the end for God's people. Pain and suffering isn't the end, but it's joy and gladness. We will be crowned with praise and everlasting joy. And if we're being real here, there's tension. I'm not just gonna skate all over this like life is just gonna be easy now. There's a real tension here. We have these beautiful images. We have this text about everlasting joy, but our day-to-day is filled with struggle. We're battling, whether it's allergies that I struggle with all the time, whether it's raising children, not being able to raise children, broken relationships, families, loneliness, isolation, uh, terminal, terminal illness, job loss, whatever the case may be, we are battling. We're restless. We struggle with contentment. We're riddled with doubts. Our faith is very uh, um, fleeing almost. It's very, uh, there's a word I'm looking for. It's here one day, gone, va- not vapid, uh, fickle. Fickle is the word I'm looking for. It's here one day, gone the next. We can have strong faith on Sunday, walk outside, the car doesn't start, and I'm just glad that we don't have to plaster the three words that'll probably come to our minds on a screen, right? We can experience joy sometimes, but we live in this battle. What's what's going on here? Isaiah's teasing out what's considered theologically the already and the not yet. And this is the tension that we live in as Christians. It's the already and the not yet. Well, what's the already? Already we've been saved from sin. Already by faith, you're united with Jesus. And when God looks at you, he doesn't see you, he sees Jesus covering you. You're cloaked in Jesus's righteousness already. Already God's law doesn't condemn you anymore, but as a Christian, it's a lamp for your light for your life. Already that's taken place, that's beautiful, but there's a not yet to this equation. Not yet has sin been eradicated in our lives. We're a work in progress. We are being restored. We are being changed into Christ's likeness. We still struggle with sin. We still battle with the fallenness of this world, with ailments, with brokenness. We still struggle in many ways uh, to understand Uh, how in the world we lose power for a week and society absolutely collapses. We're two weeks without power and y'all gonna turn cavemen on us. It's gonna be wild, right? Already, our world has not been redeemed yet and we are still battling with the world, our flesh, devil, everything around us, internally and externally, we live in battle. But there comes a time as we look forward to Christ's promises where all of this will be made new. There will come a time where we won't struggle with allergies, sickness, broken relationships, sneezing and throwing our neck out and having to go to the chiropractor. There will be a time where where we will not have to battle with the fallenness of nature and hurricanes any longer. There will come a time or we will be at perfect peace, where we will get to experience perfect joy. But until then, 
we live in this delicate dance of the already and the not yet. Until that time, Christians, we will get glimpses of heaven. Even as tired as we are this morning, we get to sing with each other and praise God together. That's a glimpse of heaven. When we see puppies and laugh, y'all, this is real. Why do we find joy in that universally? I don't wanna be around a person that doesn't enjoy a little puppy, like a little puppy galloping, right? Joy begets joy. That's instilled in us. We get a little taste of heaven, but it's fleeting. Why is all of this fleeting? It's because we live in the already and the not yet. God is teaching us, however, through salvation that once he saves you, you get a new lens for how you view everything in this world. You get a new lens, and this lens does two things primarily. One, it transforms the way you view the world. So even if you have nothing, are in poverty, are in homelessness, God's lens transforms you to see that one day there are riches waiting for you. One day there is a palace waiting for you that Jesus has prepared for you. Conversely, if you have every luxury in this world, that lens helps you to see like, yeah, this is nice, but this isn't eternal. Like I can enjoy this with an open hand. Like if I redo the tile in my bathroom and my kid drops a dumbbell and cracks three of the tiles, like I'm not gonna lose my mind about it because this is just a thing, right? It helps you to experience the things of this life with an open hand. But secondly, what uh, your lens of salvation does for you is it transforms your grief and suffering. When you have the lens of salvation, you see that the marks and the scars that you have on your body, even the ones that are, in, in, are internal, some of us carry scars that can't be seen that are just as damaging, maybe even more damaging than physical abuse. And we carry those and it wages war against us. It tries to keep us in prison, but the lens of salvation helps you to see that one day all of our scars internally and externally are going to be transformed because Jesus is not in the grave, because he's resurrected and he's making all things new. He's transforming our scars constantly. A close of the story. Back in 1972, a napalm bomb was dropped in Vietnam and I don't encourage you to look up this picture, but many of us have seen uh, there's a Pulitzer Prize win, some sort of award that I find ironic that this boy was carrying out this little nine-year-old girl who had been uh, devastated by napalm and her body was just in a torturous position. This person thought it would be a good idea to take a picture of it and make money off of it. That's a side conversation that frustrates me, but anyway, most of you have seen that photo of this little girl being carried after this horrific incident. She was taken to doctors and they saw her mutilated body and they were like, there's no way this nine-year-old girl survives. But after 14 months in the hospital and 17 reconstructive surgeries, Naomi Fuke survived. She survived. As she grew, she writes this, the anger inside of me was like a hatred high as a mountain, and my bitterness was black as old coffee. 
I hated my life. I hated all people who were normal because I was not normal. I wanted to die many times. And she says this, doctors helped heal my wounds, but they couldn't heal my heart. How many of you have been there? How many of you have experienced this? I know I have. Later in life, she was studying in a library and she came across a New Testament and she started reading the Bible and she says this about the Bible. She said, the more I read, the more I felt confused. I wondered which was true, my religion or my Bible. By God's grace, there was a single Christian in her life who was a friend of her brother's. He said, hey, her brother was like, I don't know what this craziness you're talking about with Jesus, but I got a friend who believes the same crazy stuff. I'm gonna put you two together and you can answer all your questions. And So they met for a while, Christmas was coming up. And this man invited Kim to a Christmas service and she writes this after the service. She says, during the service, I couldn't wait to trust the Lord. Jesus helped me to learn to forgive my enemies and I finally had peace in my heart. Provocatively, she says this. Now when I look at my scars or suffer pain, I'm thankful the Lord put this mark on my body to remind me that he is with me all the time. Church, like many, uh, there might be many of you here who have experienced something similar to what Kim has experienced. You might be battling with trauma and pain and internal and external wounds. Evidence of you living in a brutal and broken world in broken relationships. But we have a savior in Jesus who knows the brutality of this world and by whose scars, Isaiah tells us, we are healed. What salvation does for us is that every time, every time our wounds and scars come to well up within us, when the world around us triggers that pain, what salvation does for us, what Jesus does for us in saving us, He says, I know what you're going through. I know your wounds because I'm the wounded one who lived and died for you and is making all things new. And it's because of my wounds, I know what you're experiencing. I'm with you. And because of the resurrection, those wounds are at the end of your story. What those wounds do is produce in you notes of a song of joy and perseverance and hope. Because your king knows what you're going through and he's conquered it. And nothing will snatch you out of his hand. Nothing will overcome you. Your future is secure. And once you realize this, you can look at your pain and you can look at your scars through the lens of salvation that says, this is not the end of me, but Jesus is going to turn all of this on its head and I'm gonna join the chorus 
of everyone else who's lived in this broken world and will all be singing together. Only in Jesus can the notes of our pain turn into a song of joy and salvation. That future-looking joy is so hard to wrap our minds around. It's so hard to grasp, but I pray that all of us would be like my six-year-old when I was driving home from daddy breakfast date. We were talking about heaven, and we were talking about how beautiful it's gonna be. And he said, Dad, I can't wait to get to heaven. Man, I pray that we all have that kind of faith. Let's pray. God, this life is, is very hard. It's challenging. It is full of brokenness. But, Lord, there's moments of joy. There's moments of happiness. There's moments of optimism. And, Lord, you give us that to encourage us. You remind us that you're with us through your word, through these moments of joy, through times of uh, shared uh, worship with you through community group, through you answering our prayers. Father, you move in ways that uh, can't be explained by science, that can't be explained by the things of this world. Uh, Father, I pray that you would encourage our faith, Lord, as we end the close of 2022, Lord, it has been uh, another year of chaos. Next year, I don't think it's gonna be any different, Lord, but come what may, Help us to cling to you in the middle of that. Encourage our faith and strengthen us. If we're in a season of, of hope and joy, Father, may we look around to others who are struggling and would you give us shoulders to help carry them and to weep with those who weep and to overflow in them the joy that we have and build other people up. Father, remind us that this faith is not our own, that it's meant to be shared. And when we do that uh, this Advent season, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.